Well, good evening. As I've said to you before, if that didn't bless you, your blesser's broken. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the rapture of the church. That could be you and I. <laughs> Three things I hope are accomplished tonight. One, that you personally are comforted and encouraged by this passage tonight. Second, that the loved ones and friends that have gone on to heaven before you, that you will be comforted and encouraged by what they're already experiencing and what they will experience with all of us one day. And three, that this passage will give you great information to be able to encourage those around you, other brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that's exactly how Paul ends this passage in verse 18, and we'll come back to that at the end where he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. You see, what we're going to be talking about tonight is not only to be personally encouraging for us, but stuff that we can encourage others with as well. With that said, would you follow along with me as I read verses 13 through 18 tonight of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so also we believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep as Christians. For we tell you this by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will surely not go ahead of those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the shout of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be suddenly caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul wrote this passage of Scripture to the Thessalonians because of their concern not only about the loved ones and friends who were dying, okay, and what was actually happening there to them, but there was also this main concern that those who failed to live until the Lord's return would somehow be at an irreparable disadvantage when he came. In other words, somehow those who had already died as Christians would be missing out on something, okay? So that, more than anything else, is the reason why Paul wrote this passage of Scripture. Not even so much to ease their mind about the subject of death and what happens to a Christian when we die. We talked a little bit about that last week, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But it was more about the fact, if we as Christians don't live until the Lord's return, then are we going to miss out on something? And Paul's like, no. No, in fact, 
the Christians who've already died and us who are still alive are all going to be part of the same event. We're all going to be smack dab right in the middle of it type of thing. So with that said, let's go down through this, though, and let's break this down tonight because there is so much in here that I think the Lord wants to reveal to us tonight. First of all, look in verse 13. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Notice something about Paul's Christian life. He is always looking for ways that he can encourage other believers simply by having information that he knows will comfort and encourage and strengthen them. So he has this information about death and about this word from the Lord about what part the, the, the Christians who've already died is going to play in the return of the Lord. And so he's like, I got this. I can't keep it to myself. I have found out from you that you're a little confused about this subject and, and maybe even have a little bit of angst and anxiety about those that have already died. And I've got this information. I'm not going to keep it to myself. I want to inform you. All of us have opportunities in our life as Christians, especially as we grow, that as we walk with the Lord, as we are in tune with his spirit, as we get into his word, as we live a life of worship and all of these things, that, that we have stuff, we have tools in our toolbox that can help other Christians be strengthened, encouraged, comforted in some way. And Paul was always looking for those opportunities. So he's like, I don't want you to be ignorant because ignorance is not a good thing. Sometimes the power that, that things have over us is simply because we don't know enough. And if we know what God says about something, then it can, you know, maybe ease our mind. And that's exactly where Paul was. So he said, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be uninformed. I've got this information. I want to share it with you. And why? Because Paul loved his fellow Christians. And that's exactly why he addresses them, notice, as brothers and sisters. He's talking to fellow believers, but it, it's a word that, that not only speaks about the fact that we are born from the same spiritual womb, if you will, but the fact that we are united by a bond of affection through Jesus Christ to one another. We should care about one another, and we should, should care especially when it comes to knowing that there's maybe a Christian who is, is, is struggling unnecessarily. Now, there, there's one thing to be struggling with emotional doubt, and it doesn't matter how much facts you give or evidence you give or proof you give. That's not the way to attack emotional doubt. That's another message. But when you know a Christian is struggling because they simply don't have all the facts, then if you love them, man, give them the facts. Give them the truth. Share with them exactly like Paul's sharing because... All they might need is that extra piece of truth, and it's like, oh, okay, that makes me feel better, you see. And he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time here because I talked about this last week, but again, this is only a term used for Christians in the New Testament, and it's referring to their death. And again, why does the New Testament use the word sleep? Because... It pictures one who is at rest, one who is simply reposing and, and lying down, you see. And it's something else. Christians actually even manifested their faith by being the first to call a graveyard a cemetery. 
because the word cemetery in the Greek, crematoria, is taken then to the Latin and, and through the European languages and came out with cemetery, which means a place of sleep. So Christians went from the pagan graveyard to a place of sleep as a way to again manifest the fact that they knew that these Christians who were buried there would be resurrected one day and that death was not the end of their existence. Please know tonight that any loved ones, any friends that you have who have died in Christ as Christians, they're at rest with the Lord and they're existing in, in fullness in heaven right now, you see. To be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, is to be present with the Lord. Jesus told the one thief who expressed faith in him on the cross that day, today you will be with me in paradise. That's what death is to the believer. So he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, though, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Several things, and this is a key phrase in the entire passage. First of all, the Bible is okay with us grieving. We need to grieve. It's okay to express sorrow and sadness at the saying goodbye to someone, being separated for a time. It's good, it's healthy, it's absolutely necessary. We need to learn, even as Christians, to grieve properly over our losses, you see. And let me say this, and I say this almost at every memorial service and funeral that I've ever done. Relax with your own way of grieving because every one of us is unique. We are all unique creations of God and not any even two Christians are going to grieve exactly the same way. We all grieve differently. So don't get caught into the trap of trying to tell others how to grieve and don't allow others to tell you how to grieve. We're all going to grieve differently at our losses. It's all going to take a little bit of a different turn, a different timetable. There is no timetable for grief. There's a healthy way to grieve, but we all need to grieve. But the point of this is, grieve, but don't grieve like those who have no hope. In our grief as Christians, we are always to keep the hope of resurrection, the hope of our reunion with our loved ones who've died in Christ, our hope of heaven, our, all of that. We are always to, in a sense, surround our grief with hope. And it's not hope so, it's hope sure. <laughs> because hope in the Bible is that sure and certain confidence that something in the future is going to happen just as God said because God is the one who revealed it. God promised it and therefore it's going to happen just like God said. That's hope, you see. And so even in the midst of death, 
and what happens to our loved ones when they die and where they go, all of this is to be couched, if you will, in hope. And let me say this again. There is a stark contrast between Christians who grieve in hope and the hopelessness of the rest of the world. Trust me. I have done funeral services for unbelievers and for audiences of unbelievers. And I've done many funerals of Christians and of audiences of Christians, and there is absolutely no comparison. I mean the hopelessness of people without Christ and without that hope of knowing for sure where they're going when they die and what happened to this person when they died, it is palpable, even in the room. It, it creates an environment within the room. There's either hope there or there's hopelessness there. And God wants us, his children, to be a people of hope even when it comes to the subject and the reality of death both for us and for others. And it all comes down to verse 14. What do we believe? Because our belief is going to fuel and drive and be the foundation for everything. And so that's why Paul says, if we believe. And the only reason he says if is it's got to be our own personal faith. We cannot live off of the convictions of anyone else you and I have to come to those strong and settled convictions ourselves. And so Paul is simply saying, if this is your conviction, if you have settled the matter that you believe that Jesus died and rose again, then you also believe that you will rise again and that all of your fellow Christians will rise again because you have that hope in what Jesus said. Do we believe that or not? Have we settled that, if you will, in our hearts and in our minds? See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ really is central to everything that we believe as Christians. Paul even said that in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not raised, then we are to be pitied above everybody else on the face of the earth because we're believing in a, in a resurrected Messiah that is not going to happen, and once we die, that's it, that's the end. They throw our body in the ground, and there is no afterlife, there is no heaven, there is no glory. You know, all the wonderful things that Nicole tried to do to encourage us about, that, that, that would all just be, not, there's nothing there. But, Paul said, Christ did rise from the dead. Therefore, everything that Jesus promised us, everything that God promises us in his word about future glory and about heaven and all the wonderful things that we sang about and worshiped to tonight, all of that is true. Do you believe that tonight? And so he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, then we also believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep as Christians. See, Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, especially because this was what really bothered them, because they thought 
if you died before Jesus came back, then somehow you're going to miss out. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Jesus is actually going to bring with him all those Christians who've already died. You see, this verse is just one verse of many in the Bible that teaches us a very important truth. Jesus is inseparable from his people. That's why he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And once you're glued to Jesus, you're glued to Jesus. And everywhere that Jesus goes, we go. So instead of Jesus coming back and leaving all the Christians who've died in heaven, no, 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 he's bringing them with him. And so tonight, I hope you will be encouraged by that very truth. Because tonight, Jesus is not only here, Jesus is connected to you inseparably. If you're a Christian, you can't be disconnected positionally from Jesus Christ. Now, you and I can walk away disobediently from Jesus Christ, and our fellowship with him can be distanced. But relationally, positionally, once we are in Christ, we are in Christ. And then he says this, Jesus will bring with him those who have fallen asleep as Christians. Literally, and even the Net Bible puts this note in there, literally in the Greek, it's who fall asleep through Jesus. I don't want you to miss that because that should be a great comfort to you about all of your loved ones who've already died and even as someday you and I have to go through death. Because what he's saying again is Jesus is inseparable from his people. Therefore, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear anything because his rod and his staff comforts us. He is there with us even through death. He doesn't, you know, leave us and cut out as we die. He's right there with us through the entire dying process. And I'll go on even to say this, even though this is not in the text. That means that Jesus, in his personal presence there, gives every believer a dying grace, a supernatural enablement and empowerment to deal with the death that they are dying, no matter how painful, horrible. Because you and I, even as Christians, sometimes we're like, oh my goodness, you know, that, that poor Christian and, and, and the, the painful death and all of that. that and I'm not minimizing it. Listen, my own father died of a terrible, you know, disease called cancer. I, I get it. But what I am saying is this. Don't discount the fact that God's not giving us who are watching somebody die that dying grace. God's only giving the dying grace to the one who's dying. 
and you and I don't know how Jesus is ministering to that person, and maybe in our mind, we're building it up that it's much, much worse than what really they're experiencing because of God's dying grace that he's giving them at that moment. Let me give you a biblical example that's really front and center. Stephen. Stephen was being stoned to death. I've never been stoned at all. But I can only imagine getting pelted with huge rocks to the point where my skull is, you know, caved in and, and my bones are all broken. That would be a terrible and very awful way to die. A very painful death, might I say. And yet the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that as Stephen was dying, he was given such a dying grace that he was actually, as he was being stoned, was not only talking to the Lord and seeing the vision of the Lord in heaven, but was actually pronouncing forgiveness upon those who were stoning him. And you and I would say, how in the world could any human being have the ability to be able to do that? I'll tell you how. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, that's how. And that's part of why we as Christians shouldn't fear death no matter how God chooses for us to die. Because our death, like Paul, should bring glory to God as we are a testimony to the reality of God, to the hope that we have as we face death, and even to the grace that we know God will give us as we are dying, because we die inseparably with Jesus and through Jesus. And Jesus is holding our hand, and he held the hand of your loved one in Christ as they were going from earth to heaven. Verse 15. For we tell you this by the word of the Lord. In other words, Paul's saying, I got this straight from God himself. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will surely not go ahead of those who are asleep. Now, notice something here, and I wanted to point this out a couple times. Do you note here, and I, I mentioned this last week, that Paul clearly lived in light of the imminent return of his Lord because he actually, by including himself in verse 15 is saying, I believe I'm going to be alive when Jesus comes, because he says, we who are alive. He actually believed that there was nothing that needed to happen before Jesus came back, even in his lifetime, and that was 2,000 years ago. He includes himself in those who will be alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. But as we talked again about last week, there will be a generation of Christians who will never experience physical death. There will be a generation of Christians who are alive, and as we talked about last week from 1 Corinthians 15, will simply be transformed or changed and exchange their earthly mortal bodies for their glorified body. Maybe that'll be you and I. It's very possible Jesus could come because Paul thought he could come in his lifetime. Here's the thing. We don't know when he's coming, which means we should always live in light of his return every day. That's the point. But Paul is saying, look, we're not going to jump ahead of those who've died, basically. 
We're not going to get a head start, verse 15, on the blessings associated with the Lord's return before those who have gone on before us. No, we're all going to be part of it together, Paul says. And then verse 16. For the Lord himself, not an envoy, not an emissary, not an angel, Jesus isn't sending anybody else. Jesus himself is going to come down from heaven. The bridegroom comes for his bride. Oh, let me point that out just for a moment because it's so interesting. You see, the return of Jesus at the rapture parallels the Jewish custom of marriage. Let's be reminded of that for just a moment. The Jewish custom of marriage is that the father chooses the bride for the bridegroom, his son. Okay? Then, just as it was with Mary and Joseph and other Jewish couples, after the father chooses the bride for the bridegroom, they are then entered into a legally binding agreement called in the New Testament a betrothal which is why Joseph would have had to literally divorce Mary to break their agreement. They hadn't consummated the marriage yet. They hadn't even started to live together or anything. But in that culture, the custom is that they were bound together through that agreement. Okay? So think of it in a spiritual terms. The father is choosing his bride for his son, Jesus. Okay? And once you and I accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we enter into a binding agreement as his bride with the bridegroom. Now, like Jewish, the bridegroom and the bride have been betrothed to each other, but again, not been consummated. The bridegroom goes away. Usually, it's for an undetermined time could be anywhere from six months to nine months to a year, even to a year and a half, even sometimes a couple of years. The bride doesn't know when the bridegroom is going to come and get her. But one day the bridegroom shows up at the bride's house where she's still living with her parents and says, I'm here to take you home. You see, that's the rapture. See, we don't know when the bridegroom's coming, but one day he's going to come and he's going to get us, his bride, the church. And he's going to take us home to that place we talked about in John 14 where Jesus said, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you. I'm the bridegroom and I'm coming to get my bride and I'm going to take you back to my house. And then after that, there's this great, marriage supper or feast. In our culture, we would call it a wedding reception, you see. After the bridegroom comes to gather the bride up and to take her home to be with him, then there's this great celebration. And that's going to happen with all the saints of God once we get to heaven. That's in the book of Revelation. So the Lord himself will come down and notice with the shout of command, the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. Isn't it interesting that as Paul describes the rapture of the church, he's associating the coming of the Lord for his church more with sound 
than with sight. It's not what is seen, it's what is heard. It's a shout. Who's shouting a command? My personal take, I think it's the father. I think the father tells the son, go get your bride. Then he says, oh, then I hear a voice of the archangel. Who's the archangel? Well, the only archangel mentioned in scripture is Michael. Now, again, I don't want to get too off track here. I believe at one time there were two archangels. In fact, that's why I think there are two angels hovering over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Because I think originally there were two archangels. I think there was Michael and I think there was Lucifer. I think he was the other archangel because no other angel is given that designation in the Bible except Michael. So I believe that Michael will give a voice of command. And then the trumpet of God, again, the trumpet that announces the victory of the Lord. I'll say this. I've seen sights in my life that obviously have left me speechless. But there's something about certain sounds where I've been in a place where I hear something and it literally like, and I know you understand, but I can't really explain it, where your insides just are moved. And you maybe even get like a shiver. And, and, and it's almost like your entire inner being is, is just being moved by what you hear. I think obviously this is going to be one of those instances to the max degree but I think when we get to heaven as I've said before even when Paul was caught up to the third heaven he didn't come back and tell everybody about what he saw as much as what he heard what he heard up there really resonated with him and I think when you and I get to heaven and we hear the worship of God and the instruments up there that we've never heard and the sounds that we've never heard and the worship of God that God is being worshipped as he should be worshipped, <laughs> that it's going to send the biggest chill we've ever had down our spine. We're going to be moved from the inside out. And then Paul says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Notice again the phrase in Christ. Death cannot sever a believer from Jesus. We die even in Christ. Again, inseparable. And basically what verse 16 at the end is reminding us is there remains, whether their body's been buried, whether they've been cremated, whether they've been lost at sea, whether they've been burned up, whatever, however there remains, eventually we all go back to dust, that their remains will be restored and resurrected. Now, as I said to you last week, I believe God will give us an intermediate body. How that intermediate body falls off and then there's a, I, I don't know all the details of that. Trust me. But I know this. God can, he can handle it. It's not going to be too difficult for God. Then, here again, Paul thinks he's going to be alive. We who are alive, who are left, will be suddenly caught up together with them in the clouds couple things first of all how sudden it is 
Again, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, as we talked about, a time period too small to even measure. The words caught up is where we get our word rapture from. The words caught up in the Greek literally mean to be snatched away by an irresistible force. Seized away. Like somebody just came and grabbed you and took you. Now the Greek word is harpazo. But somehow that never caught on, the harpazo of the church. But somewhere along the line in history, the Latin was rapturo. And that, that stuck. So that's why it's the rapture of the church. It's the Latin form of the Greek word harpazo, which means the same thing, to be snatched away or caught away. And by the way, I just want to point this out for the sake of information. This is not the only rapture, if you will, or catching or snatching away of somebody in the Bible. God has precedent. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God what? God took him. Literally snatched Enoch off the planet. Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind, in a fiery chariot, and God just, zoop, you're gone. Paul was caught up, raptured to the third heaven and saw all that in 2 Corinthians 12. And then the two witnesses in the book of Revelation, after they are raised back from the dead again, the Bible says God catches them back up to heaven. God's raptured people throughout time. Not a lot, but... It's there. And one day, the Christians who are alive and remain until the Lord's return will be snatched away from earth. But notice these next two words, with them. Who's the them? Those who've died in Christ. Can I tell you, those two words mean something to me because that means I got a reunion and so do you you know of people that are already there that you're going to see again one day. And that's the hope. We have this glorious reunion coming with all of our friends and family members who've died in Christ. We're going to see them again, never to be separated again. Besides many, many other family members and friends, I have a mom, a dad, and a brother and a sister up there waiting on me. I can't wait to see them again. I hope that will encourage you that one day you're going to see your loved ones again as well. That's the hope. But then, here's the highlight for all of us. With them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And that word meet is a very powerful word. It means to be face to face with intimately. We will see Jesus face to face. If that doesn't get you, we're each going to stand before the face of Jesus Christ and meet the Lord. I don't know how that all happens that, again, all of us have that intimate moment of being face-to-face -face with him at the same time. But again, I'll leave that up to God. <laughs> That's way above my pay grade. <laughs> but again, it's not too hard for God. And then I love this. Paul says, after we see Jesus face-to-face, -face, 
we will always forever be with the Lord. And again, that's really what heaven is. It's not all these other wonderful things that we think of when we think of heaven. Heaven is more than a place. It's primarily a person. Heaven is a person. Because without God there, heaven isn't heaven. And you and I and all of those in Christ will always, always, forever be with the Lord. Therefore, Paul says, based upon everything I've told you about the rapture and everything surrounding the rapture, he says, guess what? I've now given you information that you can take to encourage each other as Christians. And by the way, that word encourage means to strengthen. So here's what Paul's saying to us. Here's our responsibility as Christians. Keep strengthening each other as you come alongside each other continually. Because that's how we encourage each other, not by staying apart from each other, not by being separated from each other, but by rubbing up against each other, by doing life together, by building relationships and friendships and all of that with each other so that we stay in constant communion and communication with each other so that we can mutually encourage each other continually. And by the way, all of this then reminds us that the Word of God strengthens us. You want to be strengthened? Get into the Word. And as I said at the very beginning of tonight, you want to be strengthened? Worship God. The worship of God and the Word of God strengthens us. It makes us strong. And we need to be strong in this day so that we can live in such a way as to witness the reality of our hope. Because let's face it, folks, we are living in a growing world of hopelessness. This Saturday, I'm doing two funerals on Saturday. One, I'm doing the funeral of a saint of God, Michelle Cabanillas' mom, who passed away last week. I mean, a wonderful saint of God. But I'm also doing a funeral that day for a young lady who took her life. She was only in high school here in the area. Folks, this is why we need to live with hope. Because we need to be that light of hope to all those around us who are so hopeless. We are living in a world that the epidemic of suicide and opioid you know, addiction and all these things people are literally taking their own lives at record numbers. We grieve, but we grieve unlike the rest that have no hope. I hope tonight you have been deeply encouraged and strengthened and comforted by being here tonight. I know I was. In fact, 
I could have got up here after worship and just prayed and we could all went home and I'd have been good. But I knew the Lord wanted me to share this tonight with you. Hope you'll come back next week. We got more encouragement for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you, God, for the foundation of hope that you've given us to live in and to live by. God, I hope every person in this room has that hope. I hope all of us have come to believe, I mean really believe that Jesus died and rose again. And that because of that, we believe that Jesus is going to bring with him all those who've died in him. And that if we are alive and remain into the coming of the Lord, we know exactly how that's going to happen. Someday we're going to just be going through the day just like it's a normal day, but it's going to be anything but because that's the day we're going to see Jesus face to face. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we're going to be transformed from this earth to the clouds and we're going to meet the Lord in the air. And we're going to be reunited with every last person who's died before us in Christ. And we're always going to be with you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for being willing to glue yourself permanently to each of us. To being inseparable. And Lord, even being faithful when we are unfaithful. You are trustworthy when we're untrustworthy. You're reliable when we're unreliable. You're dependable when we're undependable. But God, we can always count on you. And I pray, God, that we would just settle into you and know the strength that we can have when we just place our faith and fully rest in you, God. And as Nicole reminded us all of tonight, God, when we get there, when we see you face to face, oh God, it will be worth it all. Every act of service, every sacrifice, every tear, every blow that we took for Jesus, every bit of persecution, every mocking and scorning and all of that, Lord, that we took, It'll all be more than worth it all when we see you. For as Paul said, the sufferings of this life are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us one day. God, may we cling to that hope every day and live our lives in light of that hope every day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.